slide front tech begin to point toward either the question being asked or the answer being given in the text. In that incredible picture from Exodus, we have Moses who had every reason to be sick of the people and want a different group. God goes to him and says, I'll, block, I'll get rid of them and raise up a different people for you. And instead, Moses says, if you're not going to save them, I don't want to live in a world where people say he brought them out of Egypt, but he couldn't bring them in. Blot my name out of your book. I, I can't conceive praying like that, saying I'm willing to forfeit my eternity in the new heaven and the new earth if you'll just save these people. But that's the heart of Moses. He couldn't give his life as a ransom for the people, yet he offered it. And we see Jesus in our gospel text, Matthew 16, saying to his disciples, he's already said that there's a cross for him, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And then he turns and says, if you would follow me, there's going to be a cross for you too. There are going to have to be places where you are willing to die in order to follow me. We come to Colossians. As we said in our introduction several weeks ago, uh, this is a book that Paul was writing to a kind of grandchild church of his. He hadn't planted it. We think that it was planted by the Ephesian church uh, by a man named uh, Epaphras. And Paul is writing from prison to a group of people not to talk about what he's going through, but to address potential problems that Epaphras has reported to him. So he has this tremendous burden for these people him, whom he hasn't met. And again, we see this heart of one. If I'd been writing letters from prison, it would have been to lawyers saying, uh, you know, how about getting me out of here so I can do the Lord's work? And Paul's right there rejoicing and doing the Lord's work. So the letter was written because the Colossians were being taught by some people who had come in among them that, yes, you need the gospel, but you need more than the gospel. Yes, you need Jesus, but you need more than Jesus. You need uh, the mystery religions, these mysteries that uh, only we can reveal to you. And you need to live in a very strict sort of ascetic way. There are certain practices and these various things that come out in the letter that they were being taught that Paul is writing to refute. And basically his theme throughout this letter, as we saw two weeks ago when I was last with you, is the supremacy of Christ. And we saw him lay that out so beautifully in, in what seems to have been a hymn that first of all, he is firstborn of all creation. So he's the Lord of the cosmos and he's the integrating principle of the cosmos. In him, all things hold together. Then verse two, he says, he's also the Lord of the new creation, the church. He's not just the firstborn of all creation, he's the firstborn from the dead. And once again, in him, all things hold together because he has reconciled all things to himself. And then finally, he brings it home to the individual believer. He says, and you, when you were lost in your trespasses and sins, he made alive. And so we come now to this moment that if you've studied this, you know what's coming now in the opening verses. It is astonishing 
because it at first sounds like a total denial of everything he's just said. This letter is being written about the full supremacy and full sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this, beginning in verse 24 of Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how in the world can Paul tell us on the one hand that in Christ we have everything that we need, that he is fully sufficient. And then turn around and say, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you because in my flesh I'm fulfilling what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. How do we put those two together? Paul cannot possibly mean that something is lacking in the atonement and in its power to reconcile us completely to God. If he were saying that, it would be a denial of every letter that he wrote, which has at its heart the full sufficiency of Christ to make us right with God, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in fact, he has just said in verses we looked at last week, up in verse 19, Speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So then what in the world is he talking about? There is nothing that could ever possibly be added to Christ's sacrifice in order to make us right with God. He is our righteousness. We are in him, a new creation. He is in us by his spirit. It is our union with him 
that flows out in all of these doctrines that we describe under the biblical words of justification, regeneration, sanctification, someday glorification. These are all aspects of our union with Christ. So what does Paul mean? That in his flesh, he is fulfilling Christ's affliction. This, I believe, is the answer. Christ's sacrifice is full and sufficient, but it is not self-proclaiming. It has accomplished everything that is needed to make us right with God, but it does not declare itself to the world. That task of declaring the good news of the gospel has been entrusted to us and Paul gives us the model of his own life to show us how we should think about our place in the great commission entrusted to us. And so <clears throat> there are really two things that I believe Paul is doing in these verses that I read. I mean, obviously lots more, but these I believe are the two large areas that will help us understand what he's doing here. First, he's basically just opening up his life to us and saying, this is how I do ministry. I've used probably the word method. I hate that because it comes in our culture with this sort of uh, a technocratic, uh, learn the technique of doing ministry. That, that's not what Paul's got in mind. What he's doing is opening his life and saying, look, this is how I do ministry. This is my way of doing it. And then he turns and shows us his goal. What's he after? What's he trying to accomplish by his ministry? Those two things, I'd invite you to look at them with me. The answer to the first is found in verse 25. His way of doing ministry is to make the word of God fully known. And his goal, he states in verse 29 of chapter 1, it's in order to present God's people to God fully mature. So his way is to make God's word fully known and his goal is to present the people he's writing to, the people he's discipling, the people there with him in prison and all those of us who would read this letter down through the ages to present us fully mature to God. So that's where we're going. So first of all, to make the word of God fully known, how does he do that? Two ways that he shows us. And the first, we come back to this idea of, I fulfill in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is writing from prison. Paul knew what it was to suffer. Those of you who've studied uh, 2 Corinthians and know what he was doing toward the end of it, people had come in and said, Paul's not a real apostle. A real apostle wouldn't always be in trouble. He wouldn't be in and out of jail. He wouldn't be disrespected. He wouldn't be taken out back and beaten. And Paul instead turns it on its head and celebrates and says, look, this is what happens if you're part of the body of Christ. Now remember too that Paul is the one who gave us this idea of God's people being the body of Christ. Where did he get that? On the road to Damascus. Paul was on his way to arrest Christian people, to throw them into prison, to have them beaten, 
hopefully from his perspective, to have a few of them killed. He was trying to stop this movement that he thought would destroy Judaism. And on his way, he was thrown down by this bright light and a voice spoke to him and he cries out, the voice says, stop kicking against the goads. Why, Why do you keep failing to hear what I'm telling you? And Paul cries out in his blindness, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Paul realized that if you touch a Christian, you're touching Jesus. You persecute a Christian, you are persecuting Jesus. And from that came his recognition that we are the body of Christ, that the incarnation did not cease when Jesus ascended. It continues. If we're Christ's body, then by his spirit, his aim is still to walk this world, to speak his word, to live his life, to do his stuff through the likes of you and me. And we're members of that body. I'm not the body, you're not the body. We are the body when we are together with other Christians. We're members of the body. And so Paul is telling us, this is how they treated Jesus. This is how they've treated those of us who are his true apostles. And uh, I love this little, um, I love it because Paul's talking about himself, not about me. I wouldn't love it if it were I. He's just giving examples. He says, are these people who've come in and troubled you better servants of Christ than the rest of us? He says, I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, that's the Jewish leaders, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's, he had kids talking about stones being thrown at him. Three, sorry. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show me, that show my weakness. And then, of course, a little later, he says, I will not boast except over my weakness. And he says, When I'm weak, then I'm strong because that's where God's glory is displayed. This is what he's talking about. He's saying that he has put his life on the line. So the first way that he was making the word of God fully known was that he was living in such a way that when he started teaching and preaching, people would have reason to believe what he was saying because he'd put his life on the line. I saw again recently a a very beautiful film that had been put together on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, German martyr who died on April 9th, my birthday, just 
before the war ended, a few weeks before Hitler killed himself. And Hitler, before he went to the bunker, wanted to make sure that Bonhoeffer was killed and didn't survive the war. He was a pastor who spoke boldly against Nazism. And because he was well-known, brilliant, young theologian, his friends got him to the United States. And he was safe here, and he was teaching. And then he saw what was happening in Germany. And he said, I have to go back. And they said, why, you'll be killed. He said, I have no right to speak into Germany after the war and to try to help the church if I've stayed in safety here. The only way that I can speak is if I go back and suffer with my people, which he did. And of course, though he died young, his, his witness continues and his writings continue. Why? Because he first of all declared his faith in Christ through his life, through his willingness to say, in my flesh, I fulfill that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings right here in my context in Germany. And Bonhoeffer was the one who famously in his book, Discipleship, said, only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. He coined the term cheap grace. Brothers and sisters, if there is one mark of American evangelicalism today, it is the doctrine of cheap grace. Grace is taught as if it's just God just can't wait to forgive us all and it doesn't matter how you live because it's, he wants to make us new. Yes, he forgives us over and over and over again, but it's that he wants to make us new and he wants you and me to be however broken, however inadequately, however we stumble around. He wants those who know us best to see that something new is happening within us, that God is at work and that maybe this thing that, that we believe is true. We don't have to live in situations that are terribly difficult. Every single one of us, even in a free society like ours, has points where we will be despised for our testimony to Christ, however winsomely we hold it up. And those are the points where it matters. You know, when, I've said this to you before, but I think one of the most abused verses in the American church is Paul's words in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so we tell kids that, well, you know, you just stand up in Sunday school and say it. Now, by God's grace, it's God who saves. But Paul was writing to people who once a year had to go up to a temple dedicated to Caesar and take a pinch of incense and put it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. That had to be their public declaration for them to be able to continue to work unhindered. And if they wouldn't do it, they could lose their families, lose their jobs, and in places where it was strongly enforced, they could lose their lives. That's the, why in 1 Corinthians 12, when he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, you say, well, wait a minute. I could walk in any bar in town and say, round of drinks for everybody. If everybody will say Jesus is Lord, they'll all say it. He's not, he's talking about that moment that they all knew that they would face 
where it could cost them everything. Where are those points in our lives? Perhaps we don't even recognize them. The moment passes. We didn't speak. We didn't stand. We didn't. It, but it doesn't matter. Oh, it does. God wants us to stand in the places where we least want to stand. He wants us to stand for the people we least want to stand for. And Paul says, in my flesh, I've sought to do this because he's God's. He belongs to him. But he didn't just live it. I hear people, I, I hear this line from time to time in the strangest places. And um, people always smile like now at last I see it. They say, well, it's as St. Francis of Assisi said, always preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Have you heard that? Francis never said it. Every Francis scholar says, we have no idea where that came from. It's not in anything that he ever left. None of his disciples ever attributed it to him. And he not only lived a beautiful life, but he was a powerful preacher. So he never would have said that. He loved using words. He stood in public square and preached the gospel to people. And so, yes, we're to live in a way that gives credence to what we will say, but at some point you've got to say it. And you can't say it unless you know it. And so Paul says, I want to make the word of God fully known. I'm going to live in a way that opens the door but I'm going to declare it. And he describes it three times in these verses in terms of a mystery. And of course, he's going up against people who say, you've got to be part of our group. We can tell you the mysteries that these other Christians don't know. Mystery religions were huge in the Middle East in the first century. And you had to, it was kind of cultic. And you, well, it wasn't kind of cultic, it was cultic. You had to go in, go through ceremonies, become one of them, and then they'd begin to reveal mysteries and you'd go up through the chain. The Bible uses mystery in a completely different way. Mystery is revealed. It's this was the mystery that has now been revealed in Christ Jesus. God's purpose is that it's not just Israel, but it's all the nations. It was actually revealed to Abraham, but it was forgotten. Now look, those from every tribe, every tongue, every people are going to be part of this thing in Christ Jesus, one new people. And so this mystery is always open, it's revealed, it's to be taught. Uh, a friend of mine discovered something I'd never seen in literature. Um, his, his name is Gary Weedman. He was president of Johnson University down in Tennessee and uh, quite a New Testament scholar. And he discovered that and published this, that uh, Alexander the Great, after battles, used to gather all of his officers around him and would hold what he called a mysterium, uh, exactly the word that Paul always uses here. And it was when he would explain the battle plan. In other words, you guys were out there, you didn't know what was going on. Let me tell you what the plan was. Now, if I'd been one of his guys, I would have vastly preferred to know it before the battle. But he would do it after, and he'd lay it all out. And that's how Paul is using this word. And he's saying that you and I are to know the mystery of Christ, 
and to make that mystery known. How do we do it? You know the Gospels. You know the Epistles. You begin to know the Old Testament as well and see promise and fulfillment and see the scarlet thread running all the way through that leads to Jesus Christ. So Paul made the word fully known by living in a way that demonstrated its truth and then he declared it by revealing these mysteries. And we'll be looking at those things as we get further in the letter. Very quickly, secondly, it was to present everyone mature in Christ. How did he do that? He summarizes it all in verse 2 of chapter 2. First, he aimed at the heart. Look at how he said this. Verse 2, chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. May I just say it again? How are people to know that we're Christians? Why do so many people reject Christianity in America? All they see is Christians fighting each other and fighting them and culture warriors and the ugliest people there, often in the room, you know, embattled, instead of listening and respecting and taking principled stands in a way that demonstrates how you do that with respect for your opponent. If, if we are not loving well, I'll tell you, I, what are you going to do, fire me? I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm an old man, I'm 75 years old, I've been a pastor for 45 years, and I have stood in church councils and general assemblies and presbyteries for a long time, and I can't tell you how often I have hoped that there were no unbelievers present to see the way that people were talking to each other and arguing and debating and holding ground on things where Christians have always disagreed. Let's not ever let that be said of this congregation. Okay? Be known in this community for the way that you love and forgive and embrace one another. He aimed at the heart, but he didn't leave it there. He aimed at their mind. Look at the second half of that verse. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of, here it is again, God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then this, I love this line, as somebody who studied philosophy, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's clear what he's doing here. But just think, I'm done now. Just think in conclusion of this. This was over 2,000 years ago. Paul was sitting in prison. He was writing to a church in a little town he hadn't visited. It was near Laodicea where he'd planted a church and Ephesus and all these other surrounding churches. It was in what's present-day Turkey, then they called it Asia Minor. And, and he's just writing to address their problems. Paul is not thinking, 
when people read this 2,000 years from now in Annapolis, Maryland. I mean, Paul, Paul, I'm sure, thought as all of the disciples thought. They knew they didn't know the time and season, but they all made it clear that they expected the Lord to return very, very soon. If you'd said to him, 2023, other side of the ocean, there's land over there. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have tracked with you. But God, in his providential grace, has kept for us all of these letters and accounts that we needed, and they have transcended cultures. We don't understand many things that are in them because they were written in a different language to a different culture, but God shows us in these books what we need to understand, what we need to know for salvation. And he's telling you, if you're mine, I want you to know this. I want it to change the way you live. I want it to change the way you love. I want it to change the way you speak, the way you sing, the way you play, the way you laugh, the way you weep. I want it to change everything. Because I want to present you at last mature to the one who gave himself to make you his. Father, thank you that in Christ we have the picture and in Paul and Peter and John and others who've left the record for us, we have little pictures of people who'd been so broken, so rebellious, Paul's case, a, a murderer, and yet one whom you use so mightily and who could rejoice that in his flesh he continued the suffering of the body of Christ in the world. And so may we embrace whatever comes, opportunities to show forth this new life that you have given us. Make us mature, I pray, to the honor and glory of your name and our own everlasting good. In Jesus' name, amen.